and we never brought it up again until one night late in the evening. And I just said, what, why can't you look at me and talk with me about this? I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Matthew Philp. By the time author and cultural critic Rebecca Carroll was a teenager, she had experienced the following. A childhood as the sole black member of a white adoptive family, the sole black resident of a tiny New Hampshire town, and the sole black student in a school where students happily partook in a traditional slave day in which the boys got to buy the girls. Born to a white mother and black father, Rebecca was adopted in the early 70s by a liberal white couple, intellectuals and naturalists who believed their love was enough to make their daughter feel seen. When Rebecca is 11, she is reunited with her birth mother, Tess, who, despite pushing her daughter to get a college education, sabotages her self-esteem at nearly every chance and makes racist comments about Rebecca's birth father. She even falsely accuses Rebecca's adoptive father of molesting her, pushing her to confront him. Rebecca does, and though she quickly realises Tess is wrong and that her abuser was actually a family friend, her father refuses to discuss it to this day. It isn't until early adulthood, when Rebecca has black teachers, friends, co-workers and lovers, and reunites with her birth father that she starts to cast herself in her own gaze. In her new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, Rebecca describes with heroic honesty and compassion an upbringing seated in a family whose whiteness prevents them from facing their failings, in a country unwilling to do the same. Listen as Rebecca talks to Elizabeth about navigating overt and covert racism, her difficulty connecting with both her birth and adoptive fathers, and marrying a man who would celebrate and support their son's blackness, always. Just a note, this episode includes discussion of sexual abuse that some listeners may find disturbing. Okay, let's hear from Rebecca. Rebecca, there's so many beautifully written parts of this the level of detail, first of all, and your ability to access the details of really painful eras, especially junior high, was really remarkable to me. How did you find fortitude to do that? So much of revisiting and interrogating the memories are about my whole grown-ass self, revisiting this young Rebecca. And Mm in part marveling at the way in which I navigated these situations and just thinking very plainly about the hallways and, and, and the space in middle school and just the physicality of it and just mm-hmm. being this sole Black child with the wisdom that I have now revisiting those moments, I think, is how I was able to be okay with it and also give myself language for real instincts and things that I experienced and didn't have language for. Mm-hmm. And I also was a near compulsive journal writer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it in journals that I kept and even in their most simplest <laughs> entries that were certainly not beautifully written or, or anything like that, but they, they did provide the scaffolding 
for me to go back and visit with myself at those pivotal moments and really sit with her. You mentioned junior high and the whole slave day experience and just going back to that and just feeling such sadness for her, for me, but also making of that moment what I did and seeing it as being chosen and not being denigrated for better or worse. However, that that's for me, as they say, to work out with my therapist. But I found it really interesting to go back and be in those moments guided partly by journals, partly by my own wisdom. And then also, again, it always comes back to language for me, but just knowing what it means to be gaslit, Mm -hmm. right? And how like so much of my life was about being gaslit, certainly about racism, but also about all number of things involving men, older men, peers, whatever. So that I would say is what happens when you evolve. And That is one of the reasons that it's been hard, I think, for my family to embrace this book, my experience, because they have not evolved. Because I don't think that you can really look at at a really unflinching memoir without having grown miles and miles beyond it. The title of the book is Surviving the White Gaze. I was thinking about that title and how much the gaze of whiteness is actually about not seeing at all. It's about erasing. It's about denial. It's about gaslighting. It's about white people's own inability to look at themselves. You mentioned your adoptive white family. How have they reacted to the book since it came out? Because it is unflinching. You are very honest about their inability to help you understand your blackness in relation to them and celebrate it beyond just telling you that they loved you or that you were beautiful, which was meaningful to you, it sounded like, as a little girl, but that you needed more than that, obviously. Oh, yes. I have said this numerous times. Part of parenting a Black child, particularly as a white parent, is recognizing, embracing, being in conversation, not just with your kid's Blackness, but with Blackness and race in America, in the larger Mm -hmm. conversation, in the scope of history. And being willing to recognize that you don't know what that experience is and that you haven't engaged with that experience before. And you need to think about that. It's still so bananas to me that my white adoptive parents thought it was a good idea to raise a black child in an all white, like, Mm -hmm. wow, I still Mm -hmm. am able to say wow about that. You have to be able to evolve in order to really maintain any kind of relationship. But certainly in this situation where my parents were young, idealistic, white, artsy, liberal folks who had one vision for how they wanted their family to be. And then decades later, one of the children in that picture of what they wanted their family to be has said, look, this is not what it was. It was what it was for you, but it wasn't what it was for me. And they are not able to see that. I think they feel really maligned. I think they feel betrayed. And, you know, my mom, who, as written in the book and is true to this day, has always led with love. She is truly the single most loving person I know, generous and thoughtful and lovely. But she has said to me, you know, we just wanted another kid. And my response to that is I met other kid who grew into a black woman who calls out race and racism, not just in 
my job or in the country or in politics, but in my family too. Mm -hmm. That's been really hard for them. How often do you speak with them? Not very, but you know, it's important to note that the relationship had become strained some time ago before the memoir was even on the horizon, really. What, and, it, and it started when my son, at a very young age, recognized how white everything was in this town where I grew up, and also that there was no evidence in his grandparents' house that they had a Black child. Right. And so that already unsettled them, and they didn't know how to respond to that in a way that would be satisfying to him or me, right? I mean, I think... I think it's in the book where, you know, yeah. my son actually asks and my dad could not see how that would be damaging to me or my son. The chasm just started to get wider and wider. And my mom, as has always been the case, was really trying to be the in-between to keep us together. And I, I can't go backwards now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that I thought on some level that this book would be kind of a gift that they would want to know what my experience was, not your experience. And so that still blows my mind a little bit, you know, especially as I was thinking constantly about how to be as compassionate as possible. I really wanted to make sure that I was able to paint a true and compassionate portrait. Mm -hmm. And it is very compassionate. And I think a really interesting way that you handle the concept of white supremacy and then also the general white patriarchal figure in a home is that typically that home revolves around that man and what he wants. And there's, as you said, a section at the end of your book where your seven-year-old son, you're sitting in a restaurant, there's no black people in the restaurant at all or brown people. And he asks you about this, mom, why, why are we sitting in a room full of white people? And you very deftly say you should ask your grandparents because it's up to them to answer that question. And it wasn't intended to be funny, but I did sort of laugh out loud at your father's response because your son is seven and he <laughs> says to him, like he's speaking to a 45 year old, he right. says, well, quote, as a naturalist, I need to feel connected to whatever undeveloped land there is left and how enraged you felt you're totally erased from that and your experience is totally erased from that mm -hmm. in the book when you turn 11 you meet your birth mother Tess mm -hmm. who is white and mm -hmm. your birth father Joe is black you know nothing about Joe but you do have some photos of him at this point in your life I'm wondering if you can read chapter 21 for us in which you describe a moment in which you're talking to your birth mother, Tess, about Joe, your birth father, and not knowing a lot and only having these photos to go off of. Tess had just two pictures of my birth father, whose name I learned was Joe Banks. She gave them to me when I finally worked up the nerve to ask her, not long after I started going to the speakeasy, spending time with Black boys who had Black fathers. The week I'd spent in D.C. had emboldened me to lay claim to a biological parent, a lineage, and a history that would allow me to keep the joy I felt with Jasmine and Kevin and the other Black kids as my own. But I needed to see it in my birth father's face and skin and posture to take his image and existence out from the filter of Tess's subterfuge. 
the photos would allow me to piece together my own distillation of who my father was and who he might be now. Tess laid them out on the kitchen table and I touched the worn edges as if they were velvet and not the creased yellowing paper of pictures taken from another time. They appeared both vintage and modern, simultaneously relics and urgent pieces of evidence. They're yours to keep, Tess said. I couldn't take my eyes off them. One photo in black and white featured Tess and Joe in a wooded area at a bit of a distance. Joe is in profile, leaning up against a tree, tall and narrow looking with chiseled cheekbones, extending a thin branch of some sort to Tess, whose hand is reaching out to receive it. He's wearing a light colored safari style jacket and fitted pants hemmed at the ankle, wearing loafers, dark sunglasses, and a short tight afro. Tess in jeans and white sneakers has on a hooded windbreaker. Her shoulder length hair is pulled back in a low ponytail and her mouth is ajar as if she's saying something to Joe. I think I may have been pregnant with you in this one, she said. Really? That looks like the fall and I got pregnant with you in August. I mean, I wouldn't have known I was pregnant because I was in total denial, Tess said. It was something she'd said before, but I'd already gone back into the pictures, immersed in the images of my black father, suddenly feeling deeply attached to him. The second photo, this one in color, but also of the two of them, is more close up, with Tess and Joe sitting on the grass among friends at a political rally of some sort, Tess told me. Joe, again in profile, is wearing the same cargo jacket from the other picture, the same dark sunglasses leaning back on his arms, looking forward, nose sloping down toward his lips. Tess is looking straight at the camera, her hair down and tucked behind her ears, wearing regular glasses and a denim jacket. Joe loved to be seen, Tess said, and he was cool as a cuke. He looks it, I said. I wish you had a picture of him without the sunglasses. Oh, he wore those sunglasses all the time. It was part of his appeal. He was very stylish and very into his looks. I had never heard Tess say more than four words about my birth father. Basically, he was a dog. And so this felt exciting, if also slightly unsettling. Why now? I didn't dare ask. I just wanted to sit with these photos and write a story in my head about me and my black father. I wondered what he would say to me about these black boys I found so appealing all of a sudden. Would he call them jive young Negro boys, as Tess had called them more than once? Would he caution me to stay away from them or tell me exactly how to handle them and myself as his daughter? Do you know if I was his only daughter, I asked. I don't, but you know how black men are often out here having kids with a lot of different women, so who knows? As soon as she said that, I lost the thread and the story I was writing shifted. Even though I was sitting there staring at pictures of my birth father, Tessa's comment suddenly lessened him to a faceless, stereotypical black man in America. And suddenly dad, the only father I'd ever known, fell into the void created by Tessa's racism. I gathered the photos up and put them in my bag to bring home to Warner, thinking that when I got home, I would ask dad his feelings about black people, whether he'd had any black friends growing up and maybe I'd show him the pictures of Joe Banks if he seemed interested. The blacks mostly kept to themselves, dad said plainly when I asked him if he'd ever had any black friends. But I was mostly interested in girls and turtles, of course. But there were black students at your school in Groton, right? Dad had gone to a public high school in Groton, Connecticut, which he told me before was integrated with black kids. Yes, a handful, he said. But like I said, 
they really just preferred to keep to themselves. Did you ever think that might be about self-preservation in a predominantly white environment? I never really thought about it, Beck, Dad said. Did you think about trying to make friends with any of them? They weren't interested in being friends with white people. And since then, though, I said, struggling to map this out in my brain, no black friends. You and mom have never had black friends. Well, look around, Beck, Dad laughed thinking the whiteness of our town and immediate surroundings was funny. That's kind of my point, Dad. Look around. Of course, there was my friend Lee Ling when I was at the museum school, Dad offered, and he was just a great friend and all, also Chinese. Yeah, Lee Ling was this little Chinese guy, funny as hell, Dad said. I don't know, Beck. I've mostly chosen to live in places where there aren't that many humans in general. I really need to be around the natural world. But didn't you think it might be important if you were raising a black child for her to see other black people? Mom and I both really thought the world was changing and that people were coming toward each other, Dad said. We really believed what Martin Luther King was saying. And, you know, we had those wonderful years on the hill together and, and all. And this beautiful house we have now. I mean, how lucky are we? I didn't show the two pictures I had of my birth father to Dad. Instead, I kept them and him and us to ourselves, like the black kids he described in his high school. And that scene, looking at the photos, you know, you mentioned it in the chapter you just read, but you referred to a trip to DC and that was sort yeah. of your first time. It was a school trip in which you were around other black kids and black boys mm -hmm. and black girls. And you have a sort of a flickering beginnings of a crush with a black boy for the first time. And mm -hmm. you feel yourself coming into yourself. And to search for some significance or to be curious about your own Black father, only to be told by your white mother, Tess, who repeatedly throughout the book shows that she is extremely manipulative and how she relates to you. She says, you know how Black men are, mm. you know, with such confidence, mm -hmm. without ever thinking, like, is that a perspective that I need to share one with my daughter who's asking about her father? This man is her father, number one. My black daughter. Yeah. Exactly. And number two, the incredible lack of sensitivity. There are so many moments in the book where you are spoken to like an adult and you are mm -hmm. put in adult situations many times over, I think, by your parents who were these sort of freewheeling hippies that were in open relationships or your father was in an open relationship and that was very adult and confusing to you to see growing mm -hmm. up but then when you finally you know meet Tess at 11 years old you're met with a very immature woman who the first night I think you're back with her you get to go stay with her for the weekend she takes you to a bar she takes you to a disco a disco which club is yep. shocking to me you were 11 years old. <laughs> you know, and naturally, I just really loved it, like, from the get-go. But then, of course, it ends quite differently. But the next night. You're so happy, and you feel so good, and you're you're doing dance moves that you've seen on TV. You were being celebrated, and people were paying attention to you. And on the ride home, Tess admonishes you for mm. this moment of confidence and getting attention. Yeah, how much of those moments got repeated from Tess throughout your childhood after that? It was crushing. It was crushing, not just because you look at the ways in which Black girls are adultified and 
sexualized and punished because of the ways our bodies grow or, or the assumptions of what we can handle or what we can't handle, her erasure of me, but also her expectations of me, but also just that I was feeling myself. I was having a moment, right, of black girl joy. And I was in my element and I was thrilled that I could be in my element and also have that happen that she could witness, that she could feel proud about. So it was crushing that A, she thought I was trying to steal her thunder or make it about me, but that was how things started. That set the tenor of Mm -hmm. our relationship and it proceeded to be erasing me and or using me and or (laughs) trying to tell me what it meant to be black, that she was the expert on this. And that's the other thing early on you had, you were sort of outlining what the white gaze is. It's also sheer arrogance. Mm -hmm. It's also, I will decide if and when blackness matters and how I'll define racism Mm -hmm. and whether you feel it or not. The tendency for white people to also help themselves to black culture. Well, exactly. Appropriation. Sure. I mean, we, I feel like we use that word overused around this, this conversation, but yes, you know, and, and it wasn't until my, I was in college and I had my first black professor problematic in his own way, but who really was able to open my eyes to Tess's behavior was racist. And then suddenly it was like a cascade of putting things into perspective. My high school history teacher was racist. My boss at the oil company was racist. That was a real turning point for me in terms of having the language and being able to not feel crazy, right? And also just that concept of, you know, you talked about being gaslit and feeling crazy. I imagine that there's a big part of that goes along with at times hoping that you've misunderstood something or hoping (laughs) that you're wrong because it seems so crazy that your family would do this to you. Right. Your own mother, that your own adoptive father wouldn't be able to see his, Mm -hmm. you know, his involvement in this. These are not just people. These are your, my parents, right? Like, as you said, and so it's not just painful, but I've internalized it. I've already begun to internalize it because that's what kids do with the actions and the behavior and the things that their parents say. So, so it wasn't even just like feeling gaslit by them, but when that experience I had, when my boss at my job as a receptionist at an oil company, when I was in high school, when he called me the N word, I second guessed myself about that. Like I turned around to my coworker, did you hear that? And she, of course, wasn't going to say anything. I was like, did I hear that? Mm -hmm. And so I got up and left because I did hear that. And then that night I remember looking, you know, sitting in the bathroom as I did, interviewing myself as I would. Yes, I love that part. (laughs) And I was like, did you really, are you sure that's what you heard? But, but so it's not just, you know, being gaslit by people who are supposed to love you and protect you, but it's like the way in which you internalize and then begin to second guess yourself. You talk about the influence of watching uh, daytime talk shows after school, especially Oprah and Phil Donahue. Mm -hmm. I think that those two people really were, especially Oprah, people who allowed us to talk about, not always, but a a lot about trauma and race and sexual assault. Did that influence you at all to think about wanting to interview people, like to go into wanting to tell stories and ask questions? 
Absolutely. When Oprah came on TV, I was like, that's really interesting. That's something you can do. You can ask questions. You can ask questions of people and be in conversation with people and learn about them and learn about yourself too. And then when I realized I could do that as a way to create community with black folks, all of my first five books are about interviewing black folks to create community. I did that with the Black Student Union that I established in the first college that I went to. And so it was the way that I came to conversations and interviewing and telling stories was sort of realizing that my, that my curious self, my authentic curious self was who I should have trusted all along. If you like what you're listening to, please consider becoming a Tell Me About Your Father patron. Head to patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather, where for as little as $3 a month, you can get bonus content like our Patreon-only series, Bad Dads, on which we tell you in a succinct and helpful manner why certain celebrity fathers are dreadful people. And that's in addition to the soul-calming knowledge that you're helping us cover the cost of producing episodes like this one. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. Okay, let's get back to it. Fast forwarding a bit, you're a writer and you write books full of interviews with young black girls and black women, black writers, black men, and then you land a job at Charlie Rose. So here you are at this point, you've, you are obviously very uh, experienced in telling these stories and the, the person to tell these stories and to ask these questions. And he can't seem to quite wrap his head around the fact that he has hired a very smart, experienced Black woman to work for him. He cuts you down all the time. He thinks he finds mistakes in your research that actually are not mistakes and makes a huge deal out of them. I mean, to be fair, he cut everybody down, mm-hmm. but he also was racist towards me because I was the only Black person on the staff. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And also the dark reality of it is that you're being paid uh, $35,000 to work 60 hours a week. $38,000. $38, what was your title? Um, associate producer. Yeah, 38 grand in New York City in the early 2000s to work 60 hours a week, which, by the way, is still something, you know, you worked in media for years and years. I worked in media in New York. It's still something that happens here. We stopped mm-hmm. the summer with lot of the stuff going on at Condé Nast and legacy publishers and people who feel more than happy to underpay their employees most of the time because the subtext is that these are rich white people who come from money. So we Mm -hmm. should be able to get Mm -hmm. away with all of this or it's not a big deal. But there's a moment where Toni Morrison comes, Mm. comes on and you have worshipped her writing in college. You have taught her writing to students when you yourself teach for a bit. What does she write to you in the, the book? What is her inscription to you? For Rebecca, with pleasure, Toni Morrison. With pleasure. Yeah. I was very moved by that scene because you write Toni Morrison. She was the living ancestor I'd been waiting for. She was. She was the family that you needed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, that was that was the crowning moment. But I do think that the non-living ancestors very purposefully, without sounding too woo-woo, 
dropped folks into my life at the moment that I needed them. Um, and looking back on that now, I'm really grateful. Um, but I think that that's what black folks do. As I wrote in the preface, we find ourselves for ourselves and are brought to one another. And I loved that in the preface because you talk about a student who you really connected with or that you maybe didn't realize how much of an impact you had made on the life of another black teenage girl that you were teaching. I wonder, was that your moment, your with pleasure moment? You know, have you had other moments like that where people have said thank you to you? Yes, I have, but nothing hit me like that did. And that was just when I was writing the book. Like I knew that these girls, the handful of black girls that I had, that it was really important that I be there for them. I mean, the, the absolute craziness of it was, as I wrote, wrote in the book, is that it, within a month of teaching at this private girls school, you know, I got notes from white parents saying that I was pushing an agenda and notes from black parents just thanking me beyond for being there for their girls. But so I knew that I was important then, but when I sent out to a handful of folks to, to write whatever, and Felicia sent this back to me, I just, I was absolutely floored by it mm -hmm. and so moved. And even now just thinking about it, you know, is moving, really yeah. moving. I imagine that it's incredibly gratifying to know that you were able to give someone else that, that same feeling mm -hmm. that you felt reading all of these incredible Black authors and Black female authors. Going back to your birth dad and to Tess, she doesn't have a lot of boundaries. She's very manipulative and she basically twists your arm into helping her write a book about your adoption. And it's very unfair and painful. And there's a part in it when she's asking you, she's trying to get you to help her write a screenplay adaptation. If you don't mind, I'll read a little bit. <laughs> sure. So this was that you actually did sell the screenplay of this book to Hallmark. The deal with Hallmark paid me a flat fee of $50,000 and gave me membership into the Writers Guild of America. I moved into my third loft in New York, second in Brooklyn, this one in Gowanus, where I lived by myself and settled in to spend a year writing a screen adaptation of my life through the lens of my white birth mother who had consistently manipulated my emotions and erased my blackness, sabotaged nearly every meaningful relationship I'd ever had with a black man throughout my life and suggested that my white adoptive father had molested me as a child. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> That's such a deft use of humor. Yeah, yeah. So to talk about that, Tess did suggest that that your adoptive father had acted sexually inappropriate with you and that this had kind of stemmed up from the Woody Allen Sunni story that was unfolding in the media. When you look back on that time, do you see that as like her purely baiting you to cause a rift in your dynamic with them? Or was it something that you wanted to address with them because you did actually experience molestation at the hands of a, a family friend, but you just didn't know it then. You hadn't uncovered that memory. How did you navigate that? And how did your father respond to you saying to him, I think something inappropriate happened between us? So to be perfectly honest, her motivations, and I've spent a lot of time, as you can imagine, trying to decenter her from my life and my mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. So her motivations could be very much about causing a rift. I don't know. 
that is less important to me and impactful really than the way in which my dad did not deal with that as written in the book you know i recanted any suggestion that he was inappropriate with me and stated where it had come from and that my birth mother had planted this seed and that i did feel like something had happened and there were sort of these weird instincts that your memory holds and you don't really know what they are and maybe you'd never know what they are i knew something happened i was extraordinarily close to my dad which is what makes it so painful now that our relationship is where it is or isn't so i fully thought that in writing that letter in which i said i think maybe things might have been inappropriate with us i don't believe i even said sexually inappropriate i think i said inappropriate lines blurred um, I fully thought he would be like, what are you talking about? But he never responded. And I couldn't wrap my head around it. I couldn't believe that he wouldn't just say to me, what are you talking about? I would, I would never do such a thing. Instead, my mom, as is often the case, spoke on his behalf. And we never brought it up again until one night, late in the evening. And I just said, what? Why can't you look at me and talk with me about this. Is it ego? Is it that he has his own history or experience that triggers? I don't know. He won't have the conversation with me about it to this day. So that is really heartbreaking for all the reasons that you would imagine, mm -hmm. but also because we were quite close and because ironically, the relationship we had when we, when I was a teenager and he was an adult, that relationship would have had this conversation openly. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm an adult, he doesn't want to have that conversation. That is really interesting that you were often talked to and treated as an adult, as a teenager, as we've said, and as so often black girls are treated like women when they're still kids and mm -hmm. your dad seemed very willing to talk to you about relationships you know you were privy to his affair basically and his relationship with another woman there was at times it sounded like couples swapping and it got very confusing for you and and actually ended up in the grief dissolving of a really important friendship for you as a little girl that you that you mm -hmm. really needed with a friend mm -hmm. who who was one of the rare white people in your orbit at that time who even though she it was limited had moments of understanding you and because you were a kid and what else would you do we're like oh yeah this is just what's going on in my family because of how it was presented to you in such an adult way yeah when it was time to actually have an age-appropriate conversation with him about some of this stuff, maybe, and about the blurred boundaries and that discomfort and what was that, that he couldn't do it. Or doesn't just doesn't want to, mm -hmm. which is narcissistic, but still heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Because in some ways it feels like what I imagine it might feel like for children whose parents, whose elderly parents are starting to, to lose their memory. Mm -hmm. because it's sort of like, what just happened? Mm -hmm. And not, not only what just happened, but I've just laid it out to you, <laughs> for mm -hmm. you in painstaking, you know, I mean, I poured everything into this book mm -hmm. and I waited forever to do it. 
until I was grown as hell, clear-minded, intellectually free, a mother, a partner, well established in my you know career. Like I really waited until I was in a place where I could do it honestly with the emotional clarity and fortitude and compassion. And so if I can do that and they still, particularly my dad is not able to meet me there, I don't know what else to do. Right. And I don't know if it's generational or if it's something that hmm. some parents do, but an inability to say that happened. The amount of people who have been on this podcast who've had fathers or mothers or grandparents or aunts or uncles say, you're getting the date wrong, you're getting the details wrong, it didn't really right. happen, or to not even acknowledge it. Right. Instead of right. saying right. it happened and yeah. how freeing it can be and how painful it can be to tell yourself it happened and move on. As you said, you grew yourself up and you came into the person that you are. And then you wrote this book because right. you, I, I imagine that was when you were able to say this happened and I don't mm -hmm. need anyone else to tell me otherwise. I know That's what right. happened. That's right. And also I hate the term, this is my truth, but you know, I can have had this experience and you could have had this experience and both things can be true. Mm -hmm. Both things can be true. And I will not deny you that, you know, and that has been a real eye opener for me in terms of their parenting, lack of parenting, my father, what, you know, I wanted or needed from him and what he chose or elected to give. The part I read about Tess sabotaging every relationship with a black man trying to sabotage that, that she witnessed and also injecting herself into this part of your relationship with your father. Could you read the passages in which you do reconnect with your birth father, Joe Banks? It yeah. happens when you're a little older, you've graduated from college, you're living mm -hmm. in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Living in Boston, um, but right, yep, right next door. My first thought when I looked at the man who had walked through the entrance was, this can't possibly be the man from the two pictures I had of my birth father. Where were the chiseled cheekbones, the garbadine suits, or even the slick safari-style jacket, the tight cropped afro, broad shoulders, and long lean legs? This man, now rushing towards me, was chubby, wearing a holy red tracksuit and eyeglasses with matching red frames, with an unkempt afro, face drenched in sweat. Roy said a loud and jovial hello, and Joe murmured hello back from the side of his face, unable to take his eyes off me, as if he were looking at something more astonishing than if the seven natural wonders of the world were suddenly lined up side by side, each right next to the other. I stood to greet him in a thick fog of cognitive dissonance. Joe hugged me, stood back, studied my face, tears welling, and then hugged me again. Roy left us alone to talk. This is why God put me on the earth, Joe said, his hand on my shoulders. You're so beautiful. You are the reason I'm alive. God, what? We sat down across from each other at the table where I'd been waiting and a strange wave of grief passed through me. I didn't know what I was mourning. You know, they took you from me, he said, shaken and emotional. Tess and her mother and Roy, they took you just like slave times. I wanted to keep you. I would have raised you on my own, but they shut me out and stole you away from me. But what happened with you and Tess? 
I couldn't get to the idea of him raising me on his own. I loved her. I did. But her mother didn't like me, Joe said. Her mother was a racist. Thought she and Tess and them were better than me. So they shut me out. Joe told me that it had felt especially important to be in my life because his own biological mother, Blanche Calloway, jazz singer and older sister to the better known jazz singer and band leader Cab Calloway, had no other choice but to give him up at birth so that she could focus on her budding career. It was hard enough for a black woman to even have a career back then, Joe said. She couldn't have had a career and raised a child too. I don't know who my father was, so she would have been alone too. I learned that Joe grew up in and out of foster care without any lasting familial bonds or friendships and knew of no other existing biological relatives that he might have. I hope you'll let me see you, he said, and that you'll call me Pops. It was a lot to process, but I felt an unexpected affection swelling inside of me. He wasn't what I thought he'd be or look like I'd imagined he would, but he was gentle and vulnerable. He showed up and wanted to be in my life. I didn't know how to manage one more parent in my already cramped carousel of parents, but I knew I wanted to try. Hmm. And then could you go on to page 268? Later, you're in a your boyfriend's restaurant mm-hmm. and Joe comes to meet you. A couple of months later, Joe met me at Damien's restaurant to see where my boyfriend applied his trade. Late on a Sunday, it was in the middle of the brunch rush but Damien saved us a corner table in front of the window where you could see the frost begin to melt from the glare of the sun. Joe had on the same sheepskin coat and brown wool hat from our Christmas visit and carried the same tote, this time filled with a few slim pamphlet-like books sticking out. Joe appeared less relaxed than he'd been in December and kept his coat and hat on as if prepared to make a quick exit if necessary. He flipped through the pages in one of the books, an illustrated paperback that looked self-published by whoever the author was, and that featured drawings of all the white men throughout history who were actually black. They had to pass, you see, Joe said, pointing to a man who looked like George Washington, but whose name I forget. Because America hates black men, he said, the expression on his face turning suddenly anxious. In fact, the government's been watching me for 20 years. Joe told me he was suing the government for emotional distress and was seeking thousands of dollars in damages. I was grateful to have my birth father in my life, even if I wasn't quite ready to call him Pops, as he'd asked me to, but I definitely wasn't ready for his paranoia. For one, because mental health issues run in the family on Tessa's side, and the older I got, the more I lived in constant fear that one morning I would wake up to discover I was schizophrenic, like Tessa's mother, Lena. If Joe was also schizophrenic or mentally ill, which I was only speculating about based on his behavior, then I would be for sure, too, I thought. A month later, I called Joe to tell him that I was moving to New York with one of my best friends, Corinne, and that I got a coveted job at a fancy magazine. You'll stay in touch with me now, won't you? He said over the phone. I pictured him leaning against the wall next to a hall phone at the Salvation Army in Central Square, where he did live most of the time. I will. Take care, Pops, I said, and hung up. What do you make now of your father's uh, paranoia? It's a little that it wasn't paranoia. I mean, right? It's not paranoia. He was absolutely right. And that, again, this is the kind of thing, 
had I had any black folks in my life, I would not have assumed that he was paranoid. If I knew the history of police profiling, of police violence, of the way in which black men had been demonized throughout history, then he wouldn't have been paranoid to me. But because all I had been given was this story told about blackness through a white lens, through the mm -hmm. white gaze, that's what I saw. And I will regret that to this day. Mm -hmm. And he perhaps needed to be told that it happened, you know, like, yes, it was yes. a result of his own gaslighting, cultural gaslighting. Totally. I saw a, a tweet the other day that denial is the palpable heartbeat of racism. Mm -hmm. I saw that too. I think that there's a fine line between denial and just sheer arrogance. Mm -hmm. I'm going to decide that this is what it is. We just experienced four years of it mm -hmm. with our former president. Like it was just his racism and sexism and <laughs> xenophobia and all the rest. It was pure arrogance. And also, as you say in the book, an inability for white people to even have the humility or fortitude to look right. at their guilt. The concept of white fragility, which is new to a lot of white people. Oh, we really can't look at ourselves. We really can't hear this. We really can't understand how we've benefited from our privilege and how we right. haven't used our privilege to amplify the voices of others. It needed to be heard when we really didn't need to be heard. We really didn't need to share our take in that moment. <laughs> But, you know, you, you share at the end of the book that Joe dies, that he dies and he doesn't have health insurance and he doesn't have access to good health care. My first thought when I read that was the government did kill him. Yeah, they sure did. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. I mean, I, I was sort of saying that in a non-direct way, but he didn't he didn't survive as a black man in America mm -hmm. because he was a black man. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about your descriptions of eating disorders. You describe in two scenarios in your book talking about the myth of white beauty and the idea that to be beautiful is to be sin reflected in an, a white boyfriend who has a black adopted sister who would now be described as being plus size or full figured but who he describes to you as not taking care of herself. That's echoed again later in a relationship that you have with a black man who, who comments on your body and says something about that it's just simply true that white women take better care of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering about <clears throat> the ramifications of all of these years of internalizing racism and the white gaze did it rear itself physically and you wanting to make yourself smaller and mm. wanting to shrink yourself. Was that what was happening? Completely. I mean, apart from trying to meet the standard of white beauty, it was also, you know, carving up the parts of me that were physically black, you know, my hips, my butt, my breast, like that, like my roundness is very much a part of my blackness and my black womanness. And I knew that from what we saw in the media, from what we saw on TV, from what we saw in almost every black character on a sitcom, you know, every black woman character up until the Cosby show. 
which was another influence in terms of identifying with Lisa Bonet's character because she was sort of white adjacent, Mm -hmm. you know, like she was light enough and she was thin and she had a, a look about her that was quirky. So I felt safe trying to emulate her look a little bit. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm very mindful now and probably a good bit then about trying to make myself smaller. Again, it, it all kind of comes back tonight, that moment at the disco. And I often think of that as the moment where the person I thought I was or was going to be was kind of silenced. I wanted to ask you about your husband. You wrote that it's been critical to me that Chris, your husband, is a white man understands how dearly I hold on to my own blackness, but equally important that he understand how necessary it is that our son be encouraged to hold on to his blackness too. What kind of a father is Chris to Kofi, your son, who your book is dedicated to? And how does he help him hold on to his blackness as a white father? By not making it an issue, mm-hmm. by deferring to his sense of self as a black boy, Chris is an amazing father. He is also, you know, he's a professor um, and he is an amazing teacher. He is one of the most compassionate people like in all uh, that I know. And he's also just, um, he's conversant. I use that word a lot, but, uh, but what I mean that he takes in the world, he engages with the world deeply. There's no flinching or cringing or um, wokeness or any of that kind of rhetoric for him, you know, and I, and I knew it the, the moment I met him and I, I didn't even know such white people existed, whereupon I felt I could tell that from the ideas that he pulled from his brain, from the language that he used, from the way that he was in conversation with me, from the books in his house, you know, he didn't point and say, look at all the black books I have. It's like, he's got some, you know, he's got black books because that's important for him and for his own edification, for his own sense of what's going on in the world. And so that's how he is as a, as a father. You know, he teaches uh, Black history. He teaches race. Again, our the artwork that is in our in our home, the music that he listens to, that we listen to. You know, he's a former DJ, and so his whole music archive and, and collection of records is mostly Black music. But it would be weird if he made a point to tell me that. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 he just never did. It's just who he is, and he doesn't feel any particular way about it. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook, or call us at 1-888-318-DADS and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum. 